This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Hear the word of the Lord. On the day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them into the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and re- rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> Thanks. Thank you, Hunter. Great job, buddy. Welcome again. Welcome to City Church. I'm glad that you're here. I'm Ted. And um, it's one of my assignments this morning to get to teach and continue to teach through the Gospel of Mark. We'll finish chapter four today. We've been going through this for several months now. Next week, we'll get into chapter five. So we're steady. Slowly but surely making our way through. Uh, this, uh, these seven verses are just jam-packed, and um, I have really enjoyed thinking about this text and looking at it from lots of different angles this week. And um, this, this text is gonna open up to us and confront us with and assume about Jesus one of the most mysterious things about him, which is that he's both God and man. If you're new to the scripture, or if you're new to the gospel, or if you're just trying to figure out what church is all about, Um, now for almost 2,000 years, the church has very steadily held to the reality that the scriptures present Christ as both 100% God and 100% man at the same time. He had the Holy Spirit as his father and the Virgin Mary as his mother. And while this is deep and mysterious, and while we can sort of look at it from different angles and know certain things to be true about it, we cannot completely fathom and understand it. If you think you've got your hands around it, you don't. You've got your hands around something that the Bible doesn't teach. And yet the Bible is clear. And as I look at this text, my opinion of this passage in Mark chapter four is in the book of Mark, this is the most human that Jesus looks at any point. And at the same time, from the ancient Near East perspective, that is the perspective of where this story happens, where it actually happens in history, and the group of people that experience it, and the group of people that are written to about it in the Gospel of Mark, this is Jesus' greatest moment or greatest display of his divinity that he can calm the sea. And then my my opinion is in this text, we're also, we also confront Jesus at his most beautiful And of course, we confront Jesus at his most beautiful because it is in our hour of greatest need and despair and fear. It is when everything is collapsing around us that Jesus shows up to be most beautiful. And so it hurts like crazy. And yet it is redemptively good to hear what Jesus has to say to us this morning. So with that being said, let's dig in and let's look at his humanity. Let's look at the context in Mark. I would remind you, if you're new to the scriptures or if you've been studying them for a while, these four gospel accounts, sort of in the middle of your Bible with lots of red letters, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are eyewitness accounts 
Uh, what has happened is like 20 years after Jesus has ascended and gone into heaven in bodily form, when he goes into heaven about 20 years later, the church begins to write down the accounts of the eyewitnesses realizing these people are gonna die off and the most precious thing we have as a movement of the kingdom of God, the most precious thing we have is the story of Jesus. And so let's start to write it down and capture it. And God has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John capture it. We know from the rest of the New Testament that Mark is a disciple of Peter. Peter being one of the more famous apostles. And so Mark is more than likely, um, Mark more than likely has Peter as his primary source for this book that we're reading. And if you just think through this passage, all of the details that make this sound like an eyewitness report of something that really happened 2,000 years ago. We took him, we didn't let him go back to shore. We took him from where he was in the boat and we went across to the other side. They were in Capernaum. He taught all day long. He was exhausted. He wanted to expand his ministry into the area of the Gerasenes, which we'll pick up next week in chapter five. And it says, we grabbed him, we took him. He didn't, we didn't let him go in with the crowds. We went all the way to the other side. And then there's these uh, details that don't have um, any reason to be there other than that they're just there. Like there are other boats, other smaller boats. After this horrific storm, we have no idea what happened to these boats. They really don't have any significance in the story other than Peter remembered it and he told Mark and Mark wrote it down. There are these other details like, listen, the waves are crashing over the ship and the ship was filling up and we went to look for Jesus and he was in the stern. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. And he was dead asleep. I mean, these are details that you just don't get from a legend. I mean, this is an eyewitness account of something that actually happened. They were actually on the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is this sea. It's about 15 miles long by seven miles wide. And it's right there in Palestine. It's still there to this day, obviously. And they're on the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee was really well known for these vicious squalls, these, these ferocious storms coming up. The Sea of Galilee itself is actually about 700 feet below sea level. And from the south, there's this, there, there's this ravine, there are these cliffs, and, and there, there's this really hot wind that comes from the desert, and it shoots up north across the Sea of Galilee. And to the north-northeast, there's a mountain called Mount Hermon. It's 10,000 feet above sea level. And of course, the cold air system comes down and off Mount Hermon, and this warm air system coming from the south and this cold system coming from the north creates these massive storms on the Sea of Galilee. And so these men, being expert fishermen, they knew that they were on the sea at the right time. The fishermen fished at night. We picked that up from the scriptures. We picked that up from history. They would fish at night because there was, there was a, a lesser degree of really hot air coming up from the south, and it was just a much safer time to fish. But when a storm came at night, it was all that more treacherous. So normally it was calm, but when it happened, it was usually really bad. In fact, in our text, the word that, that the words Mark uses in the Greek is it says it was a hurricane of a wind, a ferocious hurricane of a wind. He was basically saying, as an experienced fisherman who made his money on the sea, this is the worst of the worst of the worst. And so they're in a hurricane of a storm and they're in a boat. They're in a boat that's roughly 27 feet long, not even 10 yards on a football field about seven and a half feet wide. So my wingspan is six foot four. It's just a little bit longer than this. And it's about four and a half feet high. We know this because in 1986, some archeologists discovered the hole of a boat that they used something called carbon 14 technology to figure out that this boat could be dated back from 120 BC to 40 AD. And so our best guess at what they are in at this point 
is a fishing boat. And in that boat, not only was it the dimensions I just gave you, 27 by seven and a half by four and a half feet high, in this boat, the aft and the fore sections, whichever those are, I didn't look those up, I just read them online, um, those front and back sections of the boat were covered with a deck. And they did that because they would store stuff underneath there and also they would need to get up on the deck at certain times to do their work. And so from what, what, what Peter has told Mark and what Mark tells us is that Jesus is in underneath the stern, which is the back of the boat. And he's in underneath, so he's protected from the storm. And it says he's lying on the cushion. Now, we're not gonna get into this debate, but you should know that there are books written about this cushion. <laughs> Men have, women have PhDs in the cushion. And they try and debate what's going on with the cushion that Jesus is laying on. Some say it's what um, the coxswain, um, you write that down. That's gonna be on the test when you get to heaven. That's the guy that steers the boat and tells the other people what to do, the coxswain, C-O-X-S-W-A-I-N. Aren't you glad that I just study all week long for this sermon? <laughs> Not really. Um, so this guy, either he sits on it while he steers or some people say that the person of the highest dignity and honor gets to sit on this cushion. But nonetheless, it's very normal when you study archaeology and when you study the history of this time and read the legends of about 200 to 400 AD, there's always a cushion in a boat. And it says that Jesus is asleep on it and he's in under the wood deck so the storm is not awaking him and he's just dead asleep. Let me just give you our first point of application this morning. Whoever is teaching Sunday school right now gets to take the first nap this afternoon. Just a joke. The husband's like, what? That's my job. I lay around all Sunday afternoon. All right, so listen, Jesus is exhausted. Remember in chapter four, it says he's been teaching all day long from this boat and he is worn out. This is his most human moment. God puts on skin in the person of Jesus. He literally comes through the birth canal to live a perfect life for you and me and to fulfill and satisfy the law of God. And in so doing, he's exhausted and he needs to sleep. He is so sleepy, he's sleeping through a hurricane. If this is not the most human moment that we see of Christ, I don't know what is. This is the only time, in, in case you're wondering, in all the gospels, the only time where Jesus is found sleeping. He'll talk about not having anywhere to lay his head and he'll talk about being a homeless man, traveling around, doing amazing things. But it's the only time we see him sleeping, just, just deeply resting in the will of God in an incredibly tumultuous time. And so that's the humanity of Christ. So we have the sleepy, groggy preacher being woken up to this accusation. You don't care about us dying. You ever woken someone up in a really deep sleep? Not my best moments. Usually lots of sin flow from those moments. <laughs> Jesus wakes up and the groggy sailor exhibits and displays and reveals his divine majesty in ways that he has not yet to this point in the book of Mark and what I would argue in the historical setting of Mark in the most powerful show of his divinity. He says two words, peace, be still. It's recorded in our text. Like if you go back, let's go back and look at it. Verse 37, look at these sets of two all the way through our text. Go back and look at verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and as a result, the waves were breaking into the boat. If you look in verse 39, which is the verse we're looking at right now, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, 
peace. He's talking to the wind when he says peace. He's talking to the sea when he says be still. And when the disciples are blown away by this in verse 41, who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? This is actually what Jesus says. The word for peace, the word translated peace here. I looked everywhere in the New Testament and all, everywhere I could at the Greek books that we have. I looked via the computer. But peace is never the translation for this word. This word is always hush or shut up. And this word that is translated for us um, in verse 39, be still, is a very good translation. Unfortunately, it doesn't capture all of what Jesus said in the way that he said it. He literally said, shut up sit down and stay seated. The disciples might have thought for a second he was talking to them. We'll come back to that. And instantaneously, the hurricane of a wind stopped and the real amazing miracle of the situation is that the sea was glassy, calm, instantly. We have this thing that we do with some of my young nieces and nephews in my in-laws pool in Lakeland where all of us big, um, let's say husky uh, uncles, um, husky's a nice word for what we are. Uh, we just keep getting in and out of the pool and we just jump in over and over and over and try and create this massive wave storm for the older nieces and nephews. And the moms have to come out and rescue them because they think they're bad and they can handle it and they perform you know, CPR and stuff. And... Um, and just doing that for four or five minutes, what am I kidding? I can't get in and out of the pool four or five minutes. Um, a couple of minutes, we do that. And then um, we just kind of watch and sit in there in the effects of um, our power and our control. And for minutes, the waves continue to slosh around. And the kids are all out of the pool, scared to death, and the uncles are ruling and raining the pool. Um, we go to the West Coast on occasion the Gulf of Mexico being the West Coast for a Floridian. And we go to Anna Maria Island. And as a family, one year, I mean, you could go there and there are no waves whatsoever. And um, I personally don't enjoy the West Coast for this very reason. But one year, there were three-foot waves. They weren't breaking, of course. They were just kind of coming up and somehow disappearing. You couldn't surf on them. Um, but there were these three or four-foot waves. And the reason they were there, someone told us, was because there was a tropical storm hundreds of miles away several days before. Listen, a big sea like this doesn't just become glassy calm. It doesn't become mega calm, which is what it says in the scriptures, because the wind stopped. It's because Jesus said, shut up, sit down, and stay down. He's not saying, all right, I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna roll up my sleeves, I'm going to ask God to do this. He's not saying, in the name of Yahweh, do this. He is sleepy he is groggy. He is completely and utterly in control. He doesn't say, I have power. He says, I am power. He is saying to you and to me and to the storm, any power and authority and control that you have is on loan from me. I'm the Lord of the storm. I mean, the Old Testament is just chocked full of this reality that there is one, only one, who is in control of the sea, the chaotic sea of the Sea of Galilee or the Red Sea or the Dead Sea or the rushing Jordan River during, during March and April. There's only one who can control such a fury, and that is God. And God wakes up and says, as if to a little child, sit down, be still, 
and stay still. And it does. And then we can imagine as Jesus begins to remove the crusty, crustiness from his eyes and he turns his attention to his disciples. And we'll look in verses 40 and 41. But before we do, let's just review the disciples' rebuke of Jesus. Okay, this is who they've just rebuked. The one who can say to the sea, chill out, and it does. Look back. Don't you care that we are perishing? First of all, we like to make fun of the disciples. It's fun to make fun of Peter when he makes a fool of himself. It's fun to make fun of Thomas when he's doubting Jesus. I've got a feeling that you and I can associate with the disciples here. We're actually a little bothered by, I'm a little bothered by Jesus at this point right here. It would be one thing if Jesus was the experienced sailor and his disciples were not the fishermen. And he said this. It's a totally different matter. Listen, in the economy, when the professionals are freaking out, that's exactly when you and I who know nothing about the economy should freak out. Not really. The professionals are not saying, hey, we might die here. Or, hey, we're getting a little tired here. They're saying, we are dying. Let's think about our lives. Let's think about how closely we're associated with the disciples in this rebuke of the creator God Jesus. What is that event? What is that event, past, present, or future? What is that event, past, present, or future, that would cause us to say, that caused us to say, that would cause us to say, if my children and my wife died, I think that is a future event that would cause me to say, Jesus, you have fallen asleep on me, and you don't care. This is my hour of greatest need and you are gone. Listen, anyone who has tried to live the Christian faith, anyone who has any sense of honesty whatsoever would have to admit that at some point in the past, maybe right now or something in the future could so disturb us and unravel us that we would say, where are you? You don't care. It's usually betrayal. Someone really close to us just jabs us with a knife and rips it around. Or it's death, either the threat of death to us, like the sailors, or the threat of death to someone we really love. Or it's loss. Loss of control, loss of money, loss of a child, loss of a love interest. Whatever it is, let's just not... Let's just not let this rebuke of the disciples go by as if this is not the same thing we're guilty of. And this is where it gets incredibly hard. This is where it gets unbelievably hard. Turn with me and look with me at what Jesus actually says to them. Listen to what he does not say. He does not say, yeah, you know what, you guys? You were right. I was teaching all day and I was just really tired and you guys are the nocturnal sailors and I'm the whatever it is when you're during the day. And you're right, but I lost it. I should have been more in tune to your emotions. I'm sorry. He doesn't say, he does not say, I mean, listen, if you're ever in charge, if you ever find yourself in the place of hiring the pastor in charge of doing hospital visitation, 
If that is ever where you find yourself and Jesus says, I would like to apply for that job, do not accept his application because you will get fired when he gets there. Do you see what he says? Why were you guys so afraid? He literally calls them cowards. How does that go? Yes, Mr. Johnson has been diagnosed. He will die in the next two hours. He's really afraid. (laughs) And Jesus walks in and says, why are you so afraid? Where's your faith? I mean, you've experienced more than what you're indicating here. You know more than what you're showing here. What's going on? Listen, if, um, if you're ever looking for a therapist or a counselor and Jesus shows up and offers his services, I'm just warning you in advance, he's not going to say to you, what would it look like to bring that emotion into the room? How, how does that make you feel right now? I just want you to know, sometimes we preach and teach and counsel as if it's okay to rebuke God and disrespect him. Oh, it happens in the Old Testament. It happens in the Psalms. It happens here. It happens here. Let me tell you something. He is almighty God, and we shall not rebuke him. But oh, not only the humanity and the divinity, but the beauty of this one Jesus. Do you see this? He doesn't rebuke them before he saves them. Listen, if you're not getting tired of God going first in the gospel, just keep reading. He saves them, then he rebukes them. They do not get it. Do you see what they say in verse 41? They were filled with great fear. In other words, they had, a, they had fear according to what Jesus says in verse 40. They had fear of the sea and of the storm, but of Jesus, they had great fear. They were more afraid of living than dying at this point. That's when you know you've come in contact with Yahweh in skin. But listen, they don't get it. They don't repent. They say, who is this guy that the sea and the wind obey him and serve him? I mean, we know they don't get it. Four more times in chapter seven, eight, and nine, we're gonna come to more rebukes of the disciples to Jesus because he's not behaving in the way they'd like to see him behave. They don't get it. But not only does he save them and then rebuke him, he does not leave them. You say, how in the world can this possibly be loving? If you've been listening at all around here or in any Sunday school class in your entire life, you understand that the reason Jesus had to put on skin, the reason that God had to become man, the reason that he had to come and live is because he had to live a perfect, beautiful, lawful life. And that law is the law of love. It is summarized as loving God all the time and loving neighbor as well as yourself. How is it possible that right here in this passage, the way Mark has given it to us, how is it possible that Jesus is loving? I wanna tell you how this is loving on a human plane and then on a divine plane. And I would be, tell us to be careful not to try and figure out which is which. But this is how. One time I was, uh, I think after telling this story, fewer of you will look for premarital counseling from me. But um, I was uh, doing premarital counseling with, with a couple. And uh, there were some patterns that were becoming evident after six or seven weeks. And, and the patterns were very similar to what's going on in our text here. In this particular case, This would not be true of my marriage with Trisha. I would be more associated with the disciples and the woman I'm gonna tell you about. Trisha would be more not. Um, 
But in this case, there was a pattern where this young woman would continually berate and scold and question and try to control and speak in hyperbole and exaggerate her fiance. You always do this. You never do that. Over and over and over. So there is this constant, you don't care that I'm perishing. And there was another pattern in this young man who wanted to be married because the idol that it was to him, who would put his tail between his legs and say you're right and never say anything at all. And around the sixth or seventh time, I, I'd had enough. And I said, listen, she questioned him on something particular about their budget and his spending. I said, what, what would it look like? I was looking her right in the eye. What would it look like right now if he got up, if he walked over to you, if he wrapped his arms around you and he said, no, you're not going to talk to me like that, but I forgive you and I will never, ever leave you. What might that feel like if we brought that into the room? And she said to me, she stared at me. She glared at me. I thought I might turn to a pillar of salt, <laughs> like the Wizard of Oz. And she looked right at me. And I thought venom was going to come out of her. And this man walked up, got across the room, and he just held her hand. He didn't do all that I said. But let me tell you, just going close to her in that hour, in that moment, was fantastic. And eventually, her lips started to quiver, and her jaw was clenched. And a few tears began to roll, and then she just broke. And after God gave her the brokenness, he gave her the peace to stop and say, it would be scary as hell, but it would be so good. Because it's just not loving to leave people in a place where they're trying to control you with their hyperbolic, accusative, scared anger. It's just not loving. Let's talk about it on a macro level, on a divine level, on a cosmic level. This is why God can say to you and me, when whatever the storm is we're going through right now, this is why he can say, listen, you can trust me. You can know that I'm for your good. You can know that I love you. You can know that I know more than you. You can know that I'm in control of this. You can know from Psalm 107, I'm the one that threw the wind onto the sea in the first place, Jonah chapter one. You can know and trust and worship me right now. And this is how you can know. The good news is the story doesn't stop for us in Mark chapter four. The story continues on. And in the story, we are going to see, we're going to see this incredible parallel between Jesus 2,000 years ago and Jonah, the prophet that came before him hundreds of years previously. If you look at the story of Jonah, there are four chapters in the story of Jonah. If you look at chapter one, there are incredible similarities between the way that story is written and the way this story is written by Mark. And we know that that story is written first and foremost in the Hebrew language, but then later was translated into something called the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the scriptures that you and I have in English are translations of the Hebrew and the Greek and even some other languages. But if you go back to that Greek translation, the Greek Septuagint LXX translation, and you look at it with the Greek book of the Gospel of Mark, and you just study the patterns and the vocabulary that is being used, there is incredible similarity. There's a prophet on a boat. There's experienced sailors in control. 
there's a storm being thrown on the sea. The prophet is asleep and delirious to what's going on. The sailors have worked as hard as they possibly can to get, to get the ship back to where it ought to be, and they can't. The sailors wake up the sleeper angrily and accusing. And in both of them, God intervenes and saves his people. And in both of them, there was a greater fear after they were saved than before they were saved. And you say, but there's one difference. Jonah's the sinner. He's the one that got thrown into the water. It was his fault that the storms were raging in the first place. You say, here's the difference. Jesus is not thrown into the water. Oh no. Jesus wasn't thrown into the water. Jesus did not face the greatest storm of yours in my life. Jesus did not face the tsunami that can undo us. Let me tell you, us dying will not undo us. Us standing face to face with God Almighty will undo us. Jesus says in Matthew 12 and in Luke 11, he says, I am the greater Jonah that is to come. Jesus is going to enter into yours and my perfect storm for us. The perfect storm, think about the wrath of God. The vicious, ferocious, unjust attack of Satan. The most vile and disgusting way of persecution known to man in the Roman Empire. Being utterly and brutally betrayed by his own countrymen, the men and women he came to save. And when he is in the hour of that greatest need, look who's asleep. The disciples. Twice he tries to wake them up in his storm and they don't wake up. Look who betrays him and denies him and look who runs from him and look who doesn't care. It's the disciples and it's you and me and Jesus goes through that storm for us anyway and then he comes to us in these little storms and he says, you can trust me. I have been so good to you in the great storm of the cross. You can know I'm going to be good to you in this little storm. The only way for you and I to enter into evil and darkness and chaos and sin with any sense of hope is to believe that Jesus can bring good out of bad and that Jesus gives life on the other side of death. It is not in, oh, everything worked out okay. He calmed the sea. It's not in that. Because these guys all died at some point. This is what Jesus was saying when he says, where is your faith? He's saying, I've shown you enough and you've experienced enough to enter into this with my presence with you, to be gracious to you, to save you, to bring you through to the other side. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this text and we thank you for what it reveals about you. We thank you for how our heads are spinning. Mine is at least. And we just thank you for your incredible grace, your unbelievable mercy, your brutal honesty. We just thank you for how you love us as a man and as God. We just thank you for your grace and your gospel and your salvation. Lord Jesus, we confess that we have tried to control you. We confess that we've tried to manipulate you. We confess that we've been angry with you. And we are so thankful that even in the gospel, these sins of rebellion and disrespect are forgiven. Would you please convince us of this forgiveness and love that we might go from here in peace and rest and worship. In your name we pray. Amen.